morning, everybody. For our scripture today, I'd like for you to turn with me to the book of Acts. <clears throat> and we'll look at just several verses in chapter 1 of Acts and chapter 2. <clears throat> the song we just finished... I don't know if I've ever heard that before, um, but it has excellent words, and it confirms what I have felt to preach on today. Um, so I'll explain that in a minute. Acts chapter 1 <clears throat> Go ahead and read, um, beginning with verse 1. Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke, and wrote it to a some official by the name of Theosophus. And when he wrote it, he was, this man was his benefactor. This man commissioned this. <clears throat> so he says, the first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these apostles... He also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days, and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father has promised, which, he said, you heard of from me, for John baptized with water. But you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, this is at another event, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? In other words, is that what we're to wait for in Jerusalem? That's why you don't want us to leave. There's going to be a rearrangement of the kingdom. And it will be a physical, real, political, military kingdom, the restoration of Israel. And we will once again be top dog and have our country back and our sovereignty back. Jesus corrects them. He said, it's not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Chapter 2. Verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. 
And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other languages as the Spirit was giving them utterance or ability to speak. Now, I want to avoid sounding like I am apologizing for preaching on this subject. Those of you who attend here know it's not the first time. I guess I want to explain why we have to continue and continue and continue and continue and continue to dwell on this subject. A, it's the deepest need the human heart has. Second, it's the highest promise that the Father made to fill us with his spirit, to make our hearts his dwelling place through the spirit of God. Probably three, why we need to know it and preach it. Very, very few can testify to the experience. It's just the way it is. Fourth, I don't want to sound too much like Elijah who told God there's not a one left, I'm it. God said, well, it's not that bad. It's not quite that bad. It's close. You can go, I think, a lot of places around the country. You will not hear preaching on this. I'm not holding myself out as some, you know, I'm right up next to Jesus and he, you know, gets advice from me. Everybody ought to preach this because everybody needs it. Jesus, it says of him, suffered outside the city gate that with his own blood he might sanctify his people. I think that means this is a subject that matters. No one seems to talk about it. If they do, it's a kind of oatmeal, cream of wheat, mushy mess, and it is always, always lifelong, gradual, kind of a struggle to be holy in our hearts. A lifelong struggle that's never completed until we die. Which is not what happened here. What I want to ask, do my best to answer today. Why be filled with the Spirit? Why be filled with the Spirit? Jesus had to keep the disciples bringing them back to this subject because they were off on it. Why be filled with the Spirit? We cannot help but revisit briefly the disease God is out to cure. The disease always dictates the treatment. 
always. The disease dictates the treatment. We go to the doctor with certain symptoms, certain ailments, whatever they might be, and those are intended to give some general direction for treatment. But we do, as best as we can, clear, concise investigation to get to the root cause. If you are a 100% quack as a doctor, you will focus on treating the symptoms. If you're a total quack, a good doctor recognizes that there are always buried, often a root cause, producing the symptoms. We go, we recognize the symptoms, we acknowledge them, but we dig deeper to get to the cause. None of the Bible, none of the Bible makes one ounce of sense. The whole Christian gospel makes no sense at all unless we understand the human condition, that God created us pure, holy, clean, righteous, in his image, giving us the power to choose. Adam and Eve used that power of choice to rebel against God's commandment in that simple little test that he provided. Don't eat of this tree. There's a million other ones. You eat of those. Just leave that one alone. No, they had to choose, okay, we're going to eat of that one. And what happened when they did that? This is the root cause of everything. It's the root cause. We, we, our country is absolutely embroiled. You'll not go a day watching news where you won't see something about what has happened to our country. What has happened to our culture? Look at the, whether it's shoplifting, and it's, it's crazy. We have got more solutions that have been brought forward. It's, it's poverty, it's racism, and then it's racism, and on top of that, it's probably racism. It's sin. It's sin. People's hearts are black. We are not fundamentally good. No, we're not. Jeremiah the prophet, the heart is deceitful beyond anything that we know and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The next verse, I, the Lord, search the heart. Meaning what? The human heart is so desperately wicked and sick that only God recognizes the depth. And only God can do anything about it. But thanks be 
unto God. He can. He can do something about it. What we lost in the fall from creation, two things. One, we lost a relationship with God that was broken. It was severed. God had become Adam and Eve's enemy. And God banished them from the garden, kicked them out. Oh, we can't do that. We've got to be compassionate. God was. He clothed them. He gave them food. He still was merciful to them. But the deep likeness of their relationship, God said, no, you get out. And what did he do? He put an angel at the entrance to the Garden of Eden with what? Well, some Kool-Aid and some things that would just really make them happy and tell them, no, listen, no, with a sword of fire. Don't you come in here. You don't qualify anymore. We lost a relationship with God, but deeper down and farther back, we lost a resemblance to God. Adam and Eve's hearts had a natural tendency to love God, to obey God. Yet, with that power to choose, they allowed themselves to be deceived and duped by Satan into believing that God didn't really mean what he said. God said, if you sin against me, I'll cut you off from my presence. He said, you will die in that very day. Physically? No. Took Adam 900 years to die. But spiritually, they did die that day. They were severed from God. Satan convinced them that this was not true. Turned out it was. What happened to that tendency that they had to love God, fellowship with God, enjoy his presence, anticipate his arrival, apparently, each day in the garden where he walked and talked with them? What happened to that? In its place was a bent, a tendency to disobey God, to turn away from God, to flee when you hear him coming in the garden, to shrink back into the shadows because there is enmity between me and God. And no longer is there a tendency to love God, serve him. Instead, it's a it's me. I, as a human being, and as the race, we have renounced God's sovereignty over us and replaced it with self-sovereignty. I'm sovereign now. And so what do we sing? The last song. There needs to be more of you and less of me. That's always been the problem. And that song also points out that like a grain of wheat, Jesus said, 
if a grain of wheat doesn't fall to the ground and die, it produces nothing. But if it will die, much fruit is produced. What's he talking about there? I have to die. The real me, not physically. I don't end up buried out the edge of town in the cemetery. So I'm talking about that. It's dying to me and my self-sovereignty so that me gets out of the way. That is accomplished in the baptism with the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus was talking about. I've got so many thoughts that I, I don't want to, we'll be here too long. But let me say this to kind of hopefully encourage us that this is not a wild-eyed kind of doctrine, a teaching that nobody's heard of. It can't be true because that guy's the only guy that I've ever heard say much about. Or I don't know what he's talking about. What do we call John? The Baptist. Why? Because that was his mission. So we, we call him John the Baptist. How many of you here, how many of us here, know anything about water baptism? I would say everybody would raise their hands. And if we ask Jesus to come into our hearts and to forgive us of our sins, we become a part of a church. If we haven't been baptized, it's very customary for the church, the minister, whoever, and often the person themselves, to bring up the subject of baptism. I, you know, I need to get baptized. Now, when we say that, when somebody says, you know, you need to, you need to be baptized now that you've become a Christian. Who goes? I've never heard of that. I'm not sure I believe in that. Where'd that come from? Where'd that crazy notion? I've never heard that in my life. Who does that? Nobody. John said, I baptize with water. One's coming after me more powerful than I am. I can't even undo the lace on his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Why is that a big deal? What? Baptized with... What, what kind of a church is this? We don't have any problem calling John the baptizer because that's what he came to do. With water. Why don't we call Jesus the baptizer with the Holy Spirit. That's what he came to do. That was his purpose. Why is, why is that? There's such a deep resistance. It's because of the very thing in our heart that needs to be cleansed. This hesitancy to submit to something that will get me out of the road. So we're happy 
We, we, I mean, we can get just truckloads of water. And boy, we're baptism, that's great. I tell you, yeah, okay, fine. Why not just as easily, just as calmly, just as matter-of-factly say, I need to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus came to do. That's why he died. To restore that original resemblance. We lost a relationship. He came to reconcile us. We lost a resemblance. He came to restore that. How is the relationship and the resemblance reconciled and restored? Through two acts of God on the human heart. The first one, we're total rebels. We're slated for hell. God's wrath, it says, abides on us. Jesus said that. What does God propose to do for this reconciliation? Convict us to the point that we want to turn from the behaviors and the breaking of God's law and the disobedience and the rebellion that has made us estranged. Quit that, he said. Repent and believe and then walk with me not continuing the same behavior. I'm a new creature. The reconciliation has been completed. But we will know, we will notice as believers, if we're really believers and we set out to walk with God, we will in fairly short order discover that there's an undertow in my heart that is contrary to this new way of life. Because Jesus, Jesus will begin to allow us to face some of the things that he faced. The jeering of the mob, the opposition of the world, the even stiffer opposition of fake religion, and religious people, and we'll discover something here that is a divided heart or double-minded, as James calls it. We'll figure that out. We'll sense that. The old hymn writer quoted it many times, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. The hymn writer had it correct when he then said, Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Meaning stamp it deep with an image. Seal it for thy courts above. The universal experience, biblically and in human history, church history, has always been that believers discover there is an issue deeper down and farther back. And it's the, it's the I, it's the ego, who will be undisputed Lord of my heart and soul. I have to get out of the way 
God wants to purify from my heart that I and get us out of the road. So our tendency then is, Lord, thy will be done. I want your will. I don't want anything else. And Lord, even though I may have wishes, hopes, desires, there's nothing wrong with those. But I will, by the grace of God, always keep those subject to the will of God. You might change my plans, Lord. The pathway may be utterly different than I anticipate that it should be. Hopes, I hope it is. If it does, Lord, you know better. God wants to get out of our heart the stiff resistance to his will and replace it with a glad-hearted, happy, joyful, thy will be done. In fact, Lord, I don't want my will because I might be wrong. There are cases in Scripture where people wheedled God to the point that he finds that, okay, if that's what you want, you get it. And then they, they had nothing but trouble. Hezekiah is a good example of that. He should have just let well enough alone. Sometimes God will give us the intense desires we, in, we just insist on. Okay. God replaces that tendency with, Lord, I don't know when, where, how, what. Thy will be done. Your, your way is best? Always. What a freedom, a blessing, peace, joy. That is. How do you defeat somebody like that? You understand? Poor dear Job went through, you know what he said? Oh, he said, Lord, what I have greatly feared has come upon me. It didn't mean he hoped, sat around hoping, boy, I hope, I hope I get all kinds of diseases. I hope I'm reduced to total poverty. I hope all seven of my children get killed. I really, no, he didn't, he didn't think of that. But when he came, when it came, he said, the Lord's given, the Lord's taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. There is grace in our hearts, purifying in the baptism of the Spirit, that stiff resistance that can say, Lord, thy will be done. Thy will be done. And finally, Job said, Lord, if you decide to kill me, I'll still trust you. What does the devil do with somebody like that? What's he do with him? That's the kind of heart and victory that God wants to give us in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I... I probably can't, I'm not able to get across to us today how deeply I wish that it's the will of God. It's the will of God, even your sanctification, Scripture says. Paul prayed, I pray that you'll be entirely purified 
Peter told what happened on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit fell upon them that we just read about. Reflecting on it, he said, our hearts were purified by faith. What? They were disciples. Jesus gave them power to raise the dead, cast out demons, heal diseases. That's a pretty good resume. But they still had something wrong. They still had something out of joint. They still had something that in their minds, they were still, they were still the most important. When Jesus announced his crucifixion, the language is very clear. Peter grabbed him by the lapels and took him aside, doing Jesus a favor. I don't want to have to rebuke you in front of the rest of the disciples. So come over here, Jesus, son of God, maker of heaven and earth. Come over here. And then he took him and he says, this will not happen to you. Cut that kind of talk out. Was Peter on, the, on a rocket ride to hell? No. He was carnal. He was saved. Jesus said that about him. You're saved. You're no more of the world than I am. But then he turned right around in the next sentence, and he said he prayed, Father, sanctify them. They still have an issue in their heart that's got to be dealt with. So why? Why do we need to be filled with the Spirit? And let me, this just comes to my mind, lest anyone misunderstand. In that second chapter, it says that when the Holy Spirit fell upon them, they spoke with other languages. That has nothing to do with speaking in tongues. Unintelligible language, gibberish, has nothing to do with that. How do I know that? How, how can you say it? I can tell you, there's 15, I believe, in this same chapter. 15 different language groups, and the original language is clear. Not only language, glossolalia as a Big word, dialectos, local dialect. In other words, some were speaking in southern English, Alabama English, okay? That's not unintelligible language because it lists all these people groups and said they all heard in their own tongue or language the wonderful works of God. What's that all about? Some kind of prayer language. No, it's not having to do with any of that. It's our purpose to witness. It's to be witnesses, sharing the gospel. And not only is it a sharing of the gospel in their own language, but we can go deeper and say it's the language of the heart. There's a hundred places or more in Scripture where it speaks of God or a prophet or someone that says, speaks to their heart. That's deeper than my ears and my mind. It's the kind of 
speech and language and testimony and praise to God of what he's done for my heart that strikes deep into somebody's heart. So are we going to answer the question? <laughs> Maybe. Why be filled with the Spirit? One, for empowerment. Jesus said you'll receive power. Well, what kind of power? Power to be, power to fulfill the will of God for us, power to witness, courage to stand up against what the world throws at us. We know dear Peter, who in the garden, when Jesus was arrested, we don't know how many, but there was a large group of people. There were only 12 disciples and Jesus. A large group of armed people came to arrest Jesus. What did Peter do? Against all odds, he unsheathed the sword and he starts swinging it wildly and he intends to take a guy's head off. Servant, and we, we have his name, Malchus, servant of the high priest. He was flailing for all he was worth against horrible odds. Didn't bother Peter. Two, three, four hours later, a little servant girl said, are you, are you a Christian? Here's an off-color joke I want to tell you. And you just quietly put up with it. Do you go to that crazy church down there that believes such and such? Too strict. What did he do? The little girl says, I think you're with Jesus. No, I don't even know him. Nope, have no idea who he is. Can you believe it? Just a few hours. Just a few hours earlier. Again, like someone charging a pillbox, a machine gun nest alone. They give you the Medal of Honor for that. That's the courage that Peter had in the flesh. But when it was a matter of identifying with Jesus and it being a cost, when he saw how things were going, well, I don't know who he is. There's the double-mindedness, the inconsistency, the strong, weak, the up, the down, that typifies so many of the cases we see in Scripture. Up and down, up and down. Defeated, victorious. Israelites, perfect example. God brings them across the Red Sea. They get out the tambourines. They had a hoot and nanny on the other shore of the Red Sea. Dead Egyptians washing up. And they're out there just, just as a hoedown. Boy, there's no God like this. God, I'll tell you what we've never seen. This is unbelievable. He's the greatest there is. 72 hours later ran short of water and they said of the same God he brought us out here to kill us to kill our little kids and we want to go back to Egypt that's 72 hours later 
How much proof, plus looking at our own lives, do we need that there is a, such a thing as double-mindedness in believers? And it has to be cured. The baptism with the Holy Spirit is how it's cured. So we need to be baptized with the Holy Spirit as simply and as filled with faith or by faith as we submit to water baptism. Really. It just needs to be as simple as can be. Lord, I see I'm in the road. There's too much of me. Help me die to that. Like that grain of wheat. Fill me with your spirit. Cleanse that stiff resistance out of my heart. That I might save from the heart. Thy will be done. I need the baptism of the spirit for empowerment. I need the baptism of the spirit for effectiveness. A lot of people who don't doctrinally believe in much about Pentecost. They treat it more as a kind of dispensation thing. This is a new dispensation now. The Holy Spirit came into the world. I don't know where he was before, but he showed up, and now we're okay. We're in the dispensation of the Spirit. They will do their best to defer to the resurrection itself as the impetus. That's what set the disciples on fire was the resurrection. How many people got converted under the preaching of the disciples after the resurrection? There's not a record of a single person getting converted under the preaching of the disciples even after the great news of the resurrection sunk in on them. What were they doing? Fishing. They went back to fishing. It wasn't until the Holy Spirit fell upon them as they waited for 10 days. And they had no idea how many days they were going to have to wait. It turned out to be 10. They didn't know that. Jesus said, don't leave. Stay here till you receive power from on high. The Holy Spirit fell upon them purged the obsession with I out of their hearts. And that is what sent them into the street to preach. And in the very first day, 3,000 people were converted. That's why the church today so desperately needs the baptism with the Spirit, not as a church, but as a group of individuals. Every person. Remember that the tongues of fire, which Jesus said, I baptize with fire, meaning purity, purging, rested on every one of them. Individually. Individual people need to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. For effectiveness, then. A secular Roman historian summed up after the first century or so of the spread of the gospel 
in the Mediterranean basin after the day of Pentecost. The scripture and the gospel went everywhere. He summed up three characteristics of the new church, this new group of people that he attributed the phenomenal success that they had in converting people. Three things. The power of radical, radically changed lives. The town drunk wasn't a drunk anymore. In other words, the blasphemer's language cleaned up. When the Methodists, when the, when the Methodists would hit a town, especially in America, they would come to some frontier village. Usually, and I can document it from all kinds of history books, you know who met them first when the Methodist preacher rode in on, on his horse? The saloon keeper. Seriously. Why? He knew if the Methodists get a foothold in town and a bunch of people get saved, I'm out of business. That's the kind of Christianity Jesus wants us to have. The world doesn't worry about us anymore. Boy, we don't know the church going up. I'll go out of business. We don't, we don't have a ripple in the community. Why? Because we don't have what that early church had, the baptism of the Holy Spirit for effectiveness. Second thing, power of radically changed lives, anointed teaching and preaching. Finally, love for one another. How many denominations have we got in town? Across the country. I've got a book that I keep renewing. It comes out every year. Handbook of Denominations. We're, we're, up, we're up in the high thousands, not up to 10,000 yet, of denominations just in America. What does that say to the world? Finally, we need the baptism of the Holy Spirit for endurance. Jesus said, I want you to be witnesses, Judea, or in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and under the very ends of the earth. Well, that takes time. That takes till today. We've been at it for 2,000 years. But these men went wherever Jesus sent them. And endurance means we keep the faith. You can't keep the faith when you have a tendency to go back. Let me just finish with this thought, a little illustration. My brother-in-law, Hubert Harriman, grew up in Bolivia. Parents were missionaries for 40 years. And they were in, out in the jungle, right at the edge of the jungle. They weren't in some big, bustling, fairly modern city. They were out in a little dirt, dirt street village, stray dogs, and I mean, it was a mess. That's where his parents spent 41 years. And my brother-in-law grew up there. And he tells a story that I've heard him tell several times. That he had, he got a little puppy. And, you know, raised it from as soon as it was weaned. 
loved that dog as far as he knew that dog loved him played with him company there they were everywhere they went together no matter where Hubert went that dog went with him as far as he was concerned I mean that dog loved him as much as he loved that dog but he said during certain seasons of the year these bands of hunters would come through their little village heading deep into the jungle to hunt. And there would be a whole bunch of men, I don't know, 15, 20 hunters, and they'd have their bows and arrows. And they'd always have a whole bunch of stray dogs or whatever with them that would help, help them hunt. And every single time they would seasonally come through town, Hubert's dog mesmerized with all of the glitter and the excitement and the other dogs and just the hoopla. He'd chew his rope off or do something and he'd take off. He'd go with that crowd. And sometimes he wouldn't see him for two, three days as long as two, three weeks. Then he'd come back. But he said he was always kind of cut up, beat up. Um, he had to deworm him. And he, he, was, he paid a price for it. But he would sometimes find his way back as the group came back through town. And that was a pattern. When there wasn't some other allurement, that dog was with him with all of his heart. But when there was something that would draw him away, he got his eyes on that and he followed it. It's like Paul calling the tendency in our hearts to drift away from God, that prone to wander, is the flesh. It's a focusing on this world, the things that matter to this world and the values that matter here. And he told how, I don't know how many, through the lifetime of this dog, of those escapades took place. But finally he was once again gone, took off with the hunters. And he didn't come back for quite a while. When he did, he virtually dragged himself back into their little village. He was filled with all kinds of parasites, sick, and ultimately couldn't be saved. And he died. The prone to wander, prone to be subject, I want to do that. I want to expand my horizons. Killed him. That's a good illustration of what the wandering heart, the double-mindedness, will eventually do to a Christian who doesn't push forward and receive, seek and receive the baptism with the Holy Spirit and fire. I believe that's what God wanted me to say to you today, and I'm done. Let me just commit it to you to think, pray.
pray, seek. When something is God's will, you don't have to badger him to give it to you. He said, how much more? Jesus said, you don't give your son a, a rock if he wants a fish. If he says, can I have an egg sandwich? I'll give you a scorpion. He said, what in the world? He said, you wouldn't do that. Even being evil, he said, you wouldn't do that. How much more will the Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? It's that simple. John Wesley simply said this, if it's by faith, why not now? Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for the truth of your word, first and foremost. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. I know faithfully speaking to hearts today in our church. Thank you for a pastor who's willing to stay on topic of the things that are important to you. Now, Lord, I pray in the name of Jesus this morning that you help us to do what John the Baptist said to those that were listening to his voice. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Help us not to confuse that sin for sinning. It's the sin that resides in the depths of my heart that you desire to remove. So help us to do what John said so long ago, but it means so much today. As we leave this place, Lord, today, help us to keep our eyes fixed on the author and the finisher of our faith, to behold the Lamb of God who wants and desires and gave his life to take away the sin that resides in the depths of our hearts. And we do that, Lord, by surrendering, by dying to ourselves, and by picking up our cross after that experience, by picking up our cross daily and following you. And the simplicity of your word is still so hard to understand sometimes, Lord. But by faith we believe, not by understanding completely, but by faith we believe. Help us to believe for that today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.